This is your award-winning BCFM on 93.2, 24 hours a day. Good morning and welcome to One Love, One Planet, the award-winning environmental radio show here on BCFM where we talk all things environmental in Bristol, the UK and the rest of the world. Many thanks to Real Women for that brilliant show and they will of course be back next week at 10 o'clock on a Tuesday. My name's Jonah Jemfrey. I'm presenting this programme for several months for the amazing Penny Southgate who's having a very well-deserved break. We're going to be looking at some news stories related to the environment both in Bristol and further afield. We're going to play some tunes and today we have a really interesting interview with Michael Jemfrey, a translation consultant who works with SIL, which is a global faith-based non-profit that works with local communities around the world to develop language solutions that expand possibilities for a better life. They believe that Indigenous people's languages are key to caring for the environment and he will be telling us all about how they are trying to bring these communities and people who speak minority languages into the global conversation. And for those of you who think, yeah, that surname sounds familiar, yes, you guessed right, he also happens to be my dad and I've never interviewed him before. So this is going to be quite interesting, but I'm really uh, looking forward to hanging out with him for the next hour. Uh, Michael, Dad, how are you? <laughs> Hi, Shona. Hi, Bristol. Yeah, doing well. Thanks. Lovely to be here. Oh, thank you. Well, so welcome, everyone. Welcome to One Love, One Planet. Thank you for joining us. Settle in for what is sure to be an interesting hour. We will start, as we always do, with our news roundup and various headlines from around the world. So the first one I've got here is AP News, Associated Press News, a headline called Let It Be, The Women on a Mission to Save Mexico City's Bees. There is a group of mostly women who are working hive by hive to relocate bees that would be exterminated if they remained in Mexico's crowded capital city. The group was created in 2018 when a veterinarian working for the city government at the time noticed that when authorities received calls about beehives, the automatic response was to exterminate the bees. She and other colleagues began looking for an alternative. And she says, we do these rescues because it's a species that's in danger of extinction and we're an alternative so that the emergency teams don't exterminate them, we give them a second chance. Globally, of course, bee populations have been decimated in recent decades. The United States alone is estimated to have lost around 25% of its bees in the past 40 years. Earlier this year, beekeepers in southern Mexico mourned the mass killing of millions of bees by pesticides. In 2019, the United Nations raised an alarm that bee loss poses a serious threat to global food security. And over the past five years, this group has relocated around 510 hives with an average size of about 80,000 bees. Once a hive is safely stored inside the box, the group takes the bees to the rural outskirts of the city where they can recover and grow strong. They later donate the bees to local bee farmers or release them into the wild. So that's obviously extremely exciting and inspiring and well done to them. Another headline, this one from Al Jazeera. Paris Climate Summit ends without global shipping tax deal. The summit for a new global financing pact wraps up without a deal for a tax on the greenhouse gas emissions produced from international shipping. Participants at a Paris summit on finance and the climate have stopped short of a deal to create a tax on greenhouse gas emissions produced from international shipping. The two-day gathering of world leaders and finance bosses, which is aimed at tackling climate change and poverty, ended on Friday without a major announcement. Uh, Macron um, from France said this is a tax-free sector and there's no reason why it's not taxed, but he suggested that China and the United States were not supporting the idea. 
Under proposals for the tax, the money raised would be directed toward developing countries to help them with the ch deal with the challenges of climate change. Shipping accounts for nearly 3% of greenhouse gas emissions, according to the International Maritime Organization, and a European Parliament report has warned that its share could increase dramatically by 2050. Activists have also pushed for a tax on the fossil fuel industry and a tax on financial transactions, but those two proposals appear to have very little support from wealthy nations. And last headline to look at, this is a local one from the Bristol 24-7 website. Sadness after three newborn goats go missing. A trio of newborn goats have been taken from a field in East Bristol. The kids were separated from their mother on Saturday night, just days after their birth. The goats had been reintroduced in February by the Street Goat Project to graze the brambles and ivy around Purdown Gun Battery near the base of the BT Tar in Stoke Park. That's the uh, tar you can see from the motorway from the M32. In a statement posted on Facebook, the Street Goat Project wrote that the goats, the baby goats will not survive without their mums. Um, if, if anyone knows anything about them, to please get in touch with the Street Goat Project on any of their social media channels there on Facebook and other ones. Uh, all three kids are coffee golden colour, two females, one male, and they will be very distressed and noisy if still alive. So that is our news roundup, quite a lot going on there. Um, we're going to play some more music and then we'll be back very shortly to talk with Michael Jemfrey all about uh, translation and the role that uh, indigenous languages can play in uh, working to combat the climate crisis. Good morning and welcome back to BCFM. Um, this is the One Love, One Planet show with Shona Jemfrey. We've got a very special guest in the studio today, uh, Michael Jemfrey. Hello, how are you? Grant, Shona, good to be here. It's been a lot of fun listening to you interview a, a whole range of guests, great range of guests over the weeks from our home in Belfast. So it's great to be in Bel Bristol here and Hoping for a wee bit of slack, <laughs> uh, just to say I'm not expecting a Jeremy Paxman style inter oh, interrogation here. Oh no, there goes my plans. <laughs> I was, yeah, I was wondering uh, whoever dreamed up the title "One Love, One Planet." I think that's a, a stroke of genius. It's, it's a reminder to to me that we're all brothers and sisters, and we're housemates uh, on this planet, sharing an amazing home, along with a whole lot load of other creatures. So uh, great. Who dreamed it up? Do you know? <laughs> um, I don't. It might have been Penny. It might have been Penny Southgate. Southgate. Yeah. yeah. Um, lovely. Well, so can I ask you a question oh. before you start? <laughs> <laughs> All right. On the back foot already. Yeah, go yes. for it. So during the, uh, yeah, during our first, your 12, first 12 years, we as a family were living in a village in, uh, in Mali in uh, West Africa. So I'm just wondering what your, some of your memories are of that. And is there anything there that sticks with you that you feel may have fed into your concerns for the environment, Shona? Oh, that is a very good question. Um, I think I think possibly the environment was something I kind of maybe became aware of later on. Um, I think possibly what uh, what really struck me, I remember the area that we lived in, um, the main sort of uh, produce was cotton farming. That was what a lot of people um, lived on. But then I remember that the big multinational companies um, there was only one that would buy that would come by the cotton and mm -hmm. so they could yeah. set their um, prices as yeah. low as they wanted so the That's farmers right. got a really really raw deal and I remember yeah I remember sort of um, even as a sort of young person realizing how incredibly unfair that was and how the yeah sort of the cotton farmers were being exploited and I think maybe that 
then later fed into my interest in the environment and in how um, wealthier nations um, exploit um, yeah, ones that have been less lucky. Do you remember going out to the cotton fields and yeah. uh, picking cotton, helping coming home with the yes donkey carts? Yeah, it was like because um, there wasn't snow, um, but there was sort of the equivalent of snow that we played with. But yeah, no, it was lovely. Um, can I, am I allowed to ask you questions now? Or are you done with your section? <laughs> okay, well, I guess so. <laughs> if you have more, we can come back to that. Um, but yeah, I well, I'll start you off with an easy one. What's your favourite biscuit? Well, that, that's should be easy uh ginger nuts uh, your mum packs me a packet of ginger nuts every time I go and travel and so shout out to miranda <laughs> uh you're our anniversary happy anniversary oh and and, and you're and you're not with her today no, no. she's gone off to london she's just abandoned you <laughs> <laughs> no i'm sure you'll celebrate another day um lovely all right, well, let's enough enough chit chat. Let's get down to why you're here. It's not just us chatting family gossip. Um, tell us about your organisation, SIL, and why it is relevant to the environment and the climate crisis. So SIL is shortened from Summer Institute of Linguistics. All our work revolves around languages. Uh, so language obviously pervades each and every area of life, but to show how that language connects with one love, one planet, can I tell you a story from a colleague, uh, David Price, in uh, Papua, Papua New Guinea coastal community where he lives and works. So the community uh, had cut down mangrove forests um, along the coast and lost all the benefits that the mango, mangrove ecosystem provided. Healthy fisheries, control of erosion from the sea, firewood food and, and also traditional medicines from the, from the mangrove trees. So when community members described to David the near collapse of their inshore fisheries um, and then the, how the salt water was intruding into their sago forest, David helped to establish a programme in the Ambai language where important scientific information about mangrove ecosystems combined with their traditional knowledge about mangroves and passed down from their ancestors. So inspired by this, two brothers began planting mangroves in their mud, mud flats and other family members quickly joined the work, followed by nearby clan members and soon the whole community was replacing mangroves in their area. The expectation was it would take five years probably to recover the fish stocks but surprisingly in just two years fish were back and the ecosystem showed amazing resilience so to date the community has restored 60 acres of mangroves and as the local fishes fisheries began recovering other villages all the way along the coast began to recover their restore their mangrove forests in the same way so i think this story shows the importance of combining global scientific knowledge and local traditional uh, knowledge and using the local language to to marry those two so sil we've been helping to research languages around the world. There are, may be surprising to know there are over 7,000 languages have been identified and described in a reference book called Ethnologue, which we publish. And that is used, that figure of 7,000 is used by the United Nations. Ethnologue is used by UN and other organizations as they, as a definitive work in languages. Okay, so your colleague David in SIL, he worked with um, the people of the Mumbai language to 
collect and spread the knowledge combined with, you know, traditional knowledge that they'd learned from their ancestors, combine that with scientific knowledge in order to reclaim some of the land and be be empowered to kind of get it back. Um, Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Okay. So, I mean, why is it important to be interested in conserving minority languages? I mean, it could be argued that it would be better for everyone to learn majority languages like English or Spanish or Chinese or Arabic, something that Im- enables communication over a wider range of people? Mm, yeah. Well, first, maybe each of the languages is somebody's mother tongue or heart language. So heart language suggests the great value people attach to their language. And mother tongue is a reminder how language connects each of us to our family and beyond that to our community, uh, history and traditions. So each language matters because each, all people matter. But over and beyond that link between language and identity, um, knowledge about care for the environment is often encoded in language. One example is in Hawaii, where the striped mulletfish holds deep cultural and culinary and e- ecological importance. Traditional fishermen use extensive vocabulary to describe the life stages of the fish. They were called uh, puama'ama as they entered into the cultivated fish ponds. But whenever they get out of the fish ponds and return to the ocean, they're called anai, completely different word, to spawn and reproduce. So in their language, it was forbidden, or kapu in their language, within the community to harvest them when they're out in the ocean in this, in this uh, anai stage. So the language around the mullet fish supports a sustainable fishing cycle ensuring fish was available over the long term. Um, And there's another example, a bit like that in New Zealand. The ancestral Maori sayings describe the importance of leaving certain shoots on the harakeke plant, which is known as the flax in English. So this ensures that there's enough nectar for the birds who pollinate the plants, again, enabling a healthy, sustainable crop. So I think these two examples about the fish and the flax are, well, they're they're drawn from a great wee recent BBC Open University animated video, just four minutes, um, Can Saving Languages Save Nature? Okay, so there's very specific words that maybe don't translate into majority languages, but actually hold some quite useful importance in sort of knowing, yes, as you say, sustainably, like when do we, when do we harvest the fish? When do we harvest the flax? Knowing the different stages of doing that. Mm, and yep. those words aren't available in exactly. majority yep. languages. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and it sounds like education is, or should be, quite an important element in your work around the environment then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. We, we hold community practice events to, to bring together local leaders and regional partners to facilitate learning. Um, like we hosted Caring for Creation, Caring for Communities events in Bali um, for partners around Asia. And they exchanged learning and explored how to apply environmental stewardship principles in their personal and their professional lives. So they learned together, they grieved environmental loss, they addressed common problems such as erosion and landslides and flooding. So the director from the Nepal Lomi Society gave this sort of resume. Uh, He said, I I heard in the workshop that in Nepal, if, if we throw plastic rubbish in a mountain stream, eventually that rubbish can reach the Indian Ocean. And so he began to edu- educate his staff back in Nepal about recycling and waste removal and told his community they shouldn't throw garbage near the mountain streams for it could be filling, killing 
fish down in the oceans. Okay, so yeah, sort of linking up different communities and um, and and everyone learning from each other. Uh, I know at the end of last year, you um, obviously you went to Senegal for a couple of weeks. What what were you doing there? Well, it was a linked with another of our programs called Faith and Farming. So it's an initiative started in rural Nigeria a few years back. Farmers in Nigeria typically view their work as a dirty, second-class job and have very low self-esteem. Whereas according to the Bible in Genesis 2, uh, farming is a God-given vocation. Genesis 2, we're in the Garden of Eden. God gave humans the responsibility to take care of the earth. So when farmers heard this, hear this, they and they're translated into their own languages, it transforms their attitude, their self-esteem. And this can be reinforced in the workshops also by asking the question, how often do you need to go and see a doctor? Uh, Well, if you're fortunate, enjoy good enough health, maybe two or three times a year. And then the follow-up question, how many times do you need the services of a farmer? Every day of your life, basically. So which which occupation is more important? Uh, Another important thing to tap into is the local wisdom about trees especially in areas of Nigeria which have suffered from deforestation where people have cut down trees to make fields to grow their crops so a faith and farming faith and farming team will visit a farming community to gather under the shade of a mango tree and they will ask them to write on a blackboard a list of all the trees that they know using their in their local language and they may come up with a list of say 60 trees and then they will go through the list again and ask them to underline those trees that they know whose leaves are good for fertilizing the soil so usually they'll come up with maybe 30 or so more such or so such trees and then they encourage the community to plant these 30 species local species look after them and reintegrate these trees into their fields And this way, they increase biodiversity and increase crop yields and it'll give shade and source of firewood. So so in December, when I was in Senegal, I was helping to organize an event to spread this faith in farming from Nigeria across other West African countries. So there are now people from 17 countries in, in Africa have been trained in the modules and are back home rolling out the program in their local communities. And there was actually a participant from Mali in the village that we grew up in, or you grew up in Shona. So we used, and it was great to see photos from the church courtyard, church courtyard there, which is now a model allotment for growing vegetables using organic homemade compost. Right. Okay. So very much trying to, for people where faith is a big part of their lives, um, linking that back to the environment and linking mm. that back to. Um, attitudes towards the environment um, I mean that's examples from a very specifically Christian context um, how, how do you find it interacts with people of different faiths? Yeah well we, in, we, we partner with people irrespective of what faith or worldview they hold to. Yeah it's important that everybody works together so that the whole community can feel included no matter what their faith so the whole community needs to work together looking after our home or after their s- surrounding environment yeah, and that's very true across the entire world, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and why is this particular work about kind of inspiring people both locally and abroad um, to, to, to view their environment creation care as like 
almost like a sacred duty. Why is that important to you personally? Well, um, as the opening poem on creation and scripture, that's the first chapter in the book of Genesis, shows um, as God loves the creation he fashioned, the animals, the fish, the mountains, humans, so much that in the midst of creating them, he regularly pauses to note how good it all was. Six times during the poem, which was originally written in Hebrew, God step, steps back and says, Hine, which in, from Hebrew can be translated, behold, or more colloquially, look at that, or even, wow, this is good, stunning. So uh, there's a love there for his creation, so arresting, so profound, that it prompts him to step back and to relish and delight in the, just the beauty, the, the fertil- fertility, the fecundity of all, just this freshly made world, oceans and forests teeming with life. And he looks out on, on, with, in love on the earth. Uh, and there's something that we can, we can see his love made uh, visible. We can touch it. We can see it. We can hear it. We can smell it. We can taste it. So the more I find out about how compli- complex and just how wonderful the natural world is, the more I, I love and appreciate it as coming from the imagination of our, our creator father. And the more I want to cherish and protect it. And lament when we trample all over it or rubbish it. And rejoice when I hear of places where it's being cherished and given a chance to rebound. Well, I think we can all um, echo that and agree with that. So, I mean, maybe now is a good time. You've picked to play one of the songs. You picked a couple songs um, for today. Would you like to introduce uh, the first one? Well, I think just, yeah, uh, just on the back of that, that sort of t- the wonderful creation. What a wonderful world, Louis Armstrong. That was, of course, What Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong. Welcome back to One Love, One Planet uh, here on BCFM, the uh, environmental radio show. We've been talking with Michael Jemfrey, a translation consultant from SIL, which is a uh, non-profit faith-based organisation that works with minority languages to preserve uh, knowledge about uh, creation care and tackling the climate crisis and bringing those voices into the global conversation. And just before the break, we were talking about some of the different projects that have been going on, the ways um, of uh, trying to connect, of connecting faith and creation care. Um, I mean, at the very start of the show, we talked about some of the frustrations globally around, you know, world leaders not putting a tax on international shipping, you know, refusing to look at taxes on other areas. Um, but you, do you, you still you do see signs of hope, do yeah, you? Yeah, well, I do. I do really believe in that carbon tax is a great thing would be really could be, make a big game changer. But yeah, so I do see signs of hope. Shania. Um, it surprised me to learn of how resilient nature is given half a chance, like the, the fish quickly returning to Papua New Guinea, and the restored mangroves that we were talking about earlier in the show. And that experience is replicated elsewhere. Uh, there was a book came out last year called Rewilding the Sea by Charles Clover. And that recount, recounts similar experiences where no fish zones have been established um, or um, where industrial scale fishing dragging big trawlers along the the bed sea bed seabed has been banned. So in those areas, like Lime Bay in Dorset, as a local example, um, again fish stocks and marine life rebound very very quickly. But also in islands like the Ascension Islands in the South Atlantic, 
uh, fish stocks rebound, oceans are again teeming with life. So it seems to me that like God's built in resilience to ecosystems. And that, that's, that's uh, reflected in the wise biblical command for humans and their animals to take a rest one day in seven, and also to give the land a rest one year in seven. So if we give our lands and our oceans a rest, uh, don't exploit them to the utter, utter limit, then their ecosystems do replenish and fecundity and life is restored. And yeah, and another strong hope for, for Christians is that Jesus, God's son, uh, has identified with the world and has become human. And after he was crucified and laid in the tomb, his body was resurrected. And John, who wrote the gospel account, uh, one of the gospel accounts, historical records, that after he rose, Jesus had breakfast on the lakeside with his disciples. So Jesus hasn't given up on this world. He, he promised that he will come again, rid the world of all evil and all tears, suffering. And so when we pray, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as in heaven, that then part of the answer to our own prayer there is to anticipate this final new um, creation, recreation, um, and participate in that, in, in healing our suffering creation now. So while there's a, I know there's a bit of a mystery here how that can happen, but maybe a gardening analogy may help to help out with our limited imagination. Like when we plant an acorn, well, we do so in faith that's going to grow up and become a, an oak tree. And the oak tree is intimately linked to the acorn. It grew out of the acorn. was so much bigger and, and stronger and more glorious than the wee acorn. So when you stop to think about that, that's quite amazing. It's, it's mysterious but it's, and it's miraculous, but it's also true. So in a similar, similar way, whatever small things we do here to help restore and renew, heal creation, God will multiply that and make it more glorious in the new earth, way beyond our, what our imagination can think. Right, yes. So, uh, yeah, quite a few metaphors there, I'm sure, that will speak to many people. So, so you, you feel that the church does care about the environment? Well, uh, from my limited perspective and knowledge, I, I think it, it's been a bit, bit of a mixed bag. In the 13th century, way back in history, Francis and Francis preached that the world was created good and beautiful by God, but suffers a need for redemption by the death of Christ because of, because of human sin, selfishness. Uh, so Francis saw God reflected in nature. So he, Francis was a great lover of God's creation and birds and creatures, etc. But I would say in the 19th and 20th century, many churches lost sight of this aspect of our faith. But I'm glad that well, we've been waking up again to our responsibilities here, um, such as the current Pope, um, who took the name of Francis when he, be, he became the Pope, and he has made very strong calls for care of, care of creation. Um, there's a, there's a, a Russia, it's, a, it's an international Christian conservation charity, which we in SAL partner with. Well, they acquired, um, by 10 years, the three-acre site called Wolf Fields in Southall, London. And this site once was used as a brickworks so they cleared it of 54 tons of rubbish and it's now transformed. Uh, the local community now has access to a safe green space there in Wolf Fields and the reserve now is the centre for 
community activities and events like, and there's an orchard and there's a community allotment and beehives, braille interpretation, there's a meadow, art installation area, prayer lab, labyrinth, ponds and a storytelling area for kids. And nest boxes and feed, bird feeding station have been had a noticeable impact on the site's biodiversity. So, yeah. Um, so we... In, um, uh, after this show, actually this afternoon, I'm going down to visit St. Matthew's Church in Kingston, down here in Bristol, which is part of uh, Russia's Euro Church scheme. And they've installed innovative new radiant heating chandeliers over the winter. And that sounds quite fancy. So, that, yeah, well, that's helped to reduce carbon emissions. And, and also lower running, get them lower running costs compared to the old gas heating system. Uh, they've also planted a wildflower garden, so I'm going down to investigate and see what's what's okay. there. See if I can bring it back to Belfast. Some ideas. Okay. Um, and then on, on a more global scale, there's two billion people around the world have no access to waste collections, which means they've no choice but to burn or to dump their their single-use plastics. So this this is sad, but it and contributes to severe health problems. I just remember in in, in Mali, just smelling the the burning plastic in our apartment. That's it was it's quite distressing. Um, so, but the so the health problems are cancer, respir respiratory issues, and also there's a release of greenhouse gases into the air. So back in 2019, Tear Fund, which is the Evangelical Alliance of Relief Fund, launched the rubbish campaign calling on big companies like Unilever, Coca-Cola, PepsiCo and Nestle to stop the rubbish by doing four things. Uh, they called them on to report the amount of plastic they use, reduce this amount by half, ensure all their waste is recollected and recycled and restore dignity to the waste pickers and help to who, and help clean up the environment that way. So, so all four companies now do disclose the annual plastic footprint and are committed to reduce their use of virgin plastic. Three of them have made significant new co commitments on plastic collection. And there's a, a new Fair Circularity Initiative launched last year, which will help drive up better incomes and working conditions for waste, waste pickers. So... Um, I think Coca-Cola said their interaction with Tier Fund was a significant step towards this. So I know Tier Fund aren't completely satisfied. They're relaunching their rubbish campaign to drive further change. So we in SIL, well, we don't do everything Tier Fund does, but we, we want to learn how to our own particular experiences with language can best contribute to work alongside partners at both global and local level. Yeah, and I suppose, yeah, fingers crossed that those big companies actually do follow through on it. It's not mm. just greenwashing, but sure. yeah, yeah, it is important to yeah. raise awareness in these ways. Yeah, I need to hold hold their feet to the fire. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, yes, uh, what ways do you see the work then of SIL, of your organisation, developing in this area then? Well, um, preserving words for the next generation is important. Um, uh, maybe you can take an example from a controversy over the junior Oxford English Dictionary a few years back. Michael Mopurgo, who's a famous kids author and other children's authors were concerned that making deletions, changes in the dictionary, they took out things like acorn, adder, ash, beach, bluebell, buttercup, 
they were all dandelion, hazel, all these sort of kingfisher were all being taken out of the dictionary and they they their campaign was said A was for acorn, B was for buttercup, C was for conquer. It's not A for attachment, B for blog, C for chatroom was things that they were being replaced with. Oh, so they were concerned that I guess the dictionary was trying to replace these words to make it easier for children to mm to learn the letters but actually a side effect might be that people for you know don't use these words as much or sort of forget and don't know how to identify them yeah well they were saying what you don't name you don't notice you don't appreciate um you don't marvel at if you go into the forest you don't know that it's just green you don't know what the, the differences between the different trees are you don't appreciate them and you don't look after them and if ultimately if you don't value them you can you don't think anything about throwing stuff away cutting it down or destroying it so, um, yeah, and I, I would argue we're, we're in the middle of cutting down, tarmacking over, obscuring things of amazing value for the sake of a quick but temporary convenience. So that's kind of an example in UK here, obviously, but thinking now of SIL's work with indigenous and local communities, uh, we want to be collaborating with these communities. Often they just have oral, oral languages, um, but we help help them to make word collections or dictionaries of words to preserve their their knowledge for the whole community and then pass them on to the next generation. So this could be through online books or, or apps or posters or community events, storytelling, whatever is most appropriate in their local cultures. Um, yeah, and then that links also with the UN. They've just recently come to recognize that indigenous at their cops you know the climate cops the biodiversity cops that they are recognizing that indigenous ecological knowledge is a key in the fight against climate change and biodiversity loss uh, actually the two are linked climate change and endangers biodiversity whereas sustaining and re restoring biodiversity can also help slow climate change capture natural capture uh, carbon capture so there are several fair targets following the 2022 UN COP on biodiversity, um, and they explicitly mention the need for collaboration with indigenous communities um, to meet their targets for protecting 30% of the, the waters and oceans of the world and sustainable harvesting of wild species and conservation of biodiversity. So, and also representation in decision-making so that the indigenous people are actually part of the, the whole, whole decision-making and not excluded. Um, so to meet these targets collaboratively, we're going to need to connect local ecological knowledge and global e scientific knowledge, like we were talking about earlier with those the folk in, in, in New Zealand and Hawaii. So it's going to be vital to enable good communication and conversation between indigenous peoples and the global scientific community to know that they're talking about the same thing. Is this, is this bird, plant or fish? Is this, what is this in, in Latin or English or, or in the indigenous community uh, language? Are they talking actually about the same thing? That can help to facilitate the conversation. Right, yeah, okay. Yeah, all these things that maybe we don't think about in terms of linking up that knowledge and people who want the same people from all sorts of different backgrounds and countries and cultures and languages who want the same outcome. But um, yeah, obviously, if you don't speak the same language, then it's harder to have those conversations. Um, we're almost toward the end of our show. What, what else would you like to say to our listeners? Well, um, 
yeah, just that we, you know, in the global village that we have today, we would probably, we need to, to remember to put into practice Jesus' words. You know, he said, love your neighbor as yourself. So we're talking about learning to have to learn to love both our local neighbor and our global neighbor. And so there's the need then to think, how do we do that? I mean, one example was that the people in Nepal, that they, the, the Nepali leader was saying, don't throw rubbish in the, in the stream because even though land, uh, Nepal is a landlocked country, it's going to destroy fish way down in the ocean and whenever it gets down the mountains into the ocean. So that was somebody who, whose vision, whose concept of loving his neighbour was wider than just Nepal, but was concerned about the, the effect down the line to other countries and also down the generations. We need to think about that. So, um, yeah, learning how to love. Love always, as the Bible says, love always preserves, love never perseveres. And so we need to keep those in mind. Yeah, and I think um, that's a good point you said about remembering our neighbourhood is more than our immediate neighbourhood because I think Mm. sometimes it's very easy to focus on our own tiny little patch and be like, well, we'll sort ourselves out and leave everyone else to sort themselves out when actually, particularly here in the West and the Global North, we're very lucky and we are, you know, sitting pretty in a lot of ways and there's a lot of responsibility we uh, owe to our global brothers and sisters and siblings um, so, yeah, how can people find out more if they're interested in SIL or they want to support the work? How, where, where can they look? Well, there's www.sil.org. There's a blog there. Um, I think you can put a link. Can you put a link on that in your show notes? <laughs> yes, I'll, um, I'll, tweet, I'll tweet it out. And also in the podcast version, I'll put a link to it in the description of and the there's podcast. Another, there's another link to the Faith and Farming, um, SIL Faith and Farming program. So, And the, I put also the link to the BBC thing. I'll send you that. Yeah, I know that video sounded really interesting. Well, thank you so much. Um, do you want to introduce uh, the second song that you picked and wh- why you chose it? Um, yeah, well, it's, I was thinking of the young, maybe the younger listeners, I don't know. <laughs> we, <laughs> we, we, when we were growing up, we, I, one of my favourite films watching with you was the Jungle Book. So, uh, <laughs> um, so Bare Necessities. And that was The Bare Necessities from The Jungle Book. And yeah, we are almost at the end of the show. We've been having a very interesting chat with Michael Jemfrey all about the role that Indigenous and minority languages can play in combating the climate crisis and the importance of preserving that knowledge. Uh, We are almost at the end of the show. We're going to briefly talk about Culture Corner. Um, So this week I wanted to briefly talk about um, a book by Ed Miliband, you know, um, (laughs) uh, maybe not the most hot name in politics at the minute, but I only recently picked up his book called Go Big, which um, is a book all about uh, ideas and policies for how we could transform Britain. And I, you know, I don't agree with everything Ed Miliband has done or said over the years, but I did find this book. I listened to the audiobook actually. He reads it himself. I did find it quite uh, a quite effective way of describing some of these ideas, some of these policies quite simply. So, for example, he talks about the Preston model, which is where. Um, uh, communities and cities uh, try and keep wealth locally, try and buy from local suppliers and local providers in order to, uh, yeah, sort of provide a better quality of living within um, within the city rather than buying in services from, you know, international companies. 
uh, there's also I think he makes a really good case for yeah so that's sort of linked to community wealth building he also makes a very good case I think for uh, working on small community campaigns in order to empower people rather than tackling the big stuff at once you know doing something small finding what uh, finding what um, his constituents care about and then working on empowering them to be like okay well we've won this small campaign there's uh, bigger ones that can be won as well um yeah Dad, yeah, <laughs> so you, it's so weird calling you Dad on air. Uh, Michael, Jeffrey, Dad, uh, you you read you've read about you this as well. For Christmas, so. I did. <laughs> um, and you said, you, yeah, we've both recently finished it, yeah, haven't it? It took good, a while for us to get good. there. I, what I liked about it was he came across as quite quite humble. You know, he said he had made mistakes and he was learning, and I think that's important that we 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 all need to keep learning and. Uh, working together on this and sharing ideas so that was impressive and uh, even though yeah even though yeah also engaging with people you don't agree with uh, um, like like the tier fund we're engaging with uh, coca-cola he was said maybe you do need to engage with oil companies and try and help them yeah and i think he he also talked i thought what so he had there were some really interesting statistics in there for example he says you know social housing provides homes for 60 percent of people in vienna which is the capital consistently voted the best place to live which i didn't know about i mean in the uk council housing is um has quite a poor reputation it's seen as not reliable it's seen as you know very difficult to get a hold of it's really not something that's prioritized but something we could prioritize and in other countries in the world they have done so and actually in quite a green way as well so i think yeah i i I quite liked some of the real life examples he'd brought of policies that had worked in other areas of the world or the country and sort of saying that these should be done nationally globally yeah is there any any final words you wanted to say um before we wrap up oh it's been great enjoyed having a chat here in the studio Oh, well, thank you very much for coming. Um, That brings us to the end of our show, I believe. Thank you um, for the interview. And thank you, our listeners, for listening. Without you, there is no show. Please do join us next week when we're going to be talking to a scientist who is also an artist, making art inspired by his trips to the Amazonian jungle. And now he's exhibiting them in London and Bristol. Yes, we have an interview with Chris Perry next week. So do join us when we'll be hearing all about that. Keep it locked to BCFM for more tunes and chat. But that's all for me shona jeffrey for now so please take care have a good day Uh, look after yourselves um, look after the planet and look after each other this is the podcast version of one love one planet the award-winning environmental radio show broadcast every tuesday at 11 a.m on bcfm radio available on 93.2 fm on digital radio and on the bcfm website the show was produced and presented by shona jeffrey You can find us on Twitter at Shona Jemfrey and at BCFM Radio.